much for leading us in that. I was just reflecting on the fact that it's really just a beautiful thing that this is not a performance that we're here, but we're actually ministering to each other and speaking words of truth to each other. And so thank you to you guys for leading us in that. Um, little change in gears now. We'll start off this morning with one of the greatest movies from one of the strangest decades in recent American history, the 1980s. Um, I wonder if anyone here has seen the movie The Princess Bride. Yeah? Okay, good, good. At least a few people. So there's a scene that you might remember where the, the main character, Wesley, uh, who's, who's the good guy, he's chasing down the bad guy trio who have captured his, his love, Princess Buttercup, and he's chased them across an ocean, and they've come to this ridiculously cartoonish thousand-foot cliff wall, and the giant has climbed up, carrying others on his back, and they've climbed up all the way to the top of the cliff, but Wesley is gaining on them, and he's climbing up as well. But when the bad guy trio gets to the top, they, they, they pull up the rope, and so Wesley is kind of stuck there just before he can get all the way to the top of the cliff, and he's trying to get to the top. The other bad guys go forward, but one of them stays behind, Inigo Montoya. The sword fighter, if you've seen the movie. He's got to be one of the greatest characters from the 1980s. So Inigo Montoya is standing there at the top, waiting to fight Wesley, to thwart him, to not allow him to come and capture his, his Princess Buttercup. And Inigo Montoya is just very eager to use his hard-won, lifelong fighting skills, sword fighting. And so he, he's ready to have a really fun, exciting, good battle with Wesley, ex- assuming that he's also a good sword fighter. And so while he's waiting, he's looking down at Wesley. He's not really sure that Wesley can con- climb up on his own. And so he, he looks over the edge and he yells down, hello there, slow going? <laughs> he's kind of waiting there. He's ready for it. He's ready for the fight. And as he waits, he starts to get impatient. And so he tells Wesley, I could throw you a rope. Although I don't suppose you would accept my help since I'm just waiting up here to kill you. (laughs) Yes, that does put a damper on our relationship, Wesley says. (laughs) But, says Montoya, I promise not to kill you until you reach the top. And uh, Wesley looks back up to him and he says, that's very comforting, but I'm afraid you're just going to have to wait. I hate waiting, Montoya says, (laughs) and he starts pacing the cliff back and forth. Uh, He looks over the edge and he says... I will give you my word as a Spaniard. No good, says Wesley. I've known too many Spaniards. (laughs) Which, by the way, I'd like to know what the history is behind that, though he doesn't explain it. Is there no way that you will trust me, says says Montoya. Nothing comes to mind, says Wesley. And then, with the most serious look in his eyes and his glorious black flowing wavy hair, Inigo Montoya looks down. He catches Wesley's eyes. He looks at him, they look at each other, and he says, I swear on the soul of my father, Domingo Montoya, that you will not die until you reach the top. Wesley looks up and says, throw me the rope. (laughs) And then the the sword fight presumes from there. I don't know if this is still done, actually, but I was thinking about it. I remember as a kid that when you were very serious, you would say, I cross my heart, hope to die. I don't know if you guys still do that. And then we added this very strange uh, addition to that, stick a needle in my eye, which is a very, very strange phrase. Um, and I hope that no kids took that seriously at any point. Um, but the fact is, these things show that just like Wesley did not trust Inigo until he swore to him, or if you're a kid, 
You can only trust this person if they cross their heart and hope to die and maybe stick a needle in their eye. That's when you can trust them. Because we know the world, and we don't really trust each other fully. We have a tendency, the human heart has a tendency to deceive, to hide the truth, to manipulate the truth, always in order to benefit ourselves. But Jesus, in the passage that we have this morning from Matthew chapter 5, he gives us a better way. And I would encourage you to turn there now and we can read it together and just leave it open while we go through the sermon this morning. Jesus' way in his kingdom is far, far better. It's very different from the world that we know and live in. Jesus calls his followers to simple truthfulness. Simple truthfulness from the heart. And so let's read from Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 33. And if you would, I don't know if this is uh, what you all do here, but if you would stand with me as I read, I would appreciate that. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not make an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. Amen. You may be seated. I do want to give you a little bit of context uh, if you, like me actually, have not been here for the most recent sermons, then we've been going through the book of Matthew, or rather you've been going through the book of Matthew, and right now we're in the section where Jesus is preaching probably the most famous sermon in the history of the world known as the Sermon on the Mount. And he starts off by talking about the character of people who follow him, the character of kingdom people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's talking about the character of those who are following him in his kingdom. And after that, he sums it up with this phrase, which is very famous, that you are salt and light in the world. Salt, which is a preserving agent in a world of decay and light in a world of darkness. Or... If you want to think about it in a different, slightly more modern way, we as God's people are to be like a trailer of the movie to come, right? We are to be, a trailer doesn't actually give you the full movie, it can't, but it does give you a true picture of the movie itself. And so the movie is God's eternal kingdom, perfect, sinless, and we as his people, the church, are to be like a trailer to the watching world, salt and light. And... The rest of Jesus' sermon in Matthew 5-7 through 7 is showing us how our lives play out as kingdom people, how our lives play out as followers of Jesus. And today we're looking at how does that play out in the realm of using our words, of speaking the truth, of truth-telling. So the whole sermon can really be summed up in two phrases, which are what Jesus is calling us to, which is where we're actually going to spend most of the time this morning, and then how Jesus himself actually fulfills that. What Jesus is calling us to and how Jesus fulfills that. So what is Jesus calling us to here? The answer is not actually very complicated, surprisingly maybe. 
He's just calling us to what I've already said, simple truthfulness. Speaking the truth, living out of truth. As Jesus' followers, we should be characterized by simple truthfulness. If you say yes, mean yes. If you say no, guess what you should mean? No. Surprisingly, or, or not, that's what Jesus said, and that's actually what he meant here. <laughs> that we should be characterized by the truthfulness of what we say. And that's really the whole sermon in a nutshell. But we'll die, dive a bit deeper to try to understand and open this up a bit more. So look at verse 33. Jesus says, Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. This, this phrase, this, which is probably in quotes in your Bible, is not actually a direct quote from the Old Testament. And that's because Jesus isn't responding to and correcting something from the Old Testament law. He's actually responding to the Pharisees' interpretation of the Old Testament law. And so in the Old Testament, God did actually allow for the taking of vows, for the making of oaths, for swearing by certain things according to his name. So there's verses like, For example, Numbers 30, verse 2, that says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. So taking oaths was allowed, and we'll we'll get back to that. But Jesus, in responding to the Pharisees' interpretation, goes on to tell his disciples in verse 34, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now maybe you're listening to these words, and they they might sound a little bit strange to you, because we don't really take oaths in that way today. We don't swear in the same kind of way, swearing by Jerusalem, or by heaven, or by earth, or by the hairs on our head. (laughs) It sounds a little weird to us. Can you imagine Sweetie, I swear to you I, by the hairs of my head that I will be at the soccer game by 2 o'clock today. <laughs> by Jerusalem, I will get milk from the Piggly Wiggly on the way home. <laughs> uh, it's just not how we speak today. So it might sound a little bit strange to our ears. So what exactly is Jesus getting at? Well, the Pharisees, they took this allowance of God in the Old Testament to take an oath to prove the seriousness of what you're saying. They took that, and, and what they said was, okay, So we're allowed to take oaths. So here are the things that we're allowed to swear by. These are very important, very serious things. And if you swear by these things, then you must keep your oath. Do your oath. Now there's these other things. They don't really, it doesn't make a lot of sense to swear by these. Don't swear by these. And if you do, you actually don't have to keep your word because, well, you didn't swear by the serious real things. And whatever you do, don't swear by God himself because we have to keep a little distance from that. So here's your list of things you can swear by. Here's the list of things you cannot swear by. And if you do, it doesn't really matter. You don't have to keep it, but just don't swear by them. Swear by these. And all the while, they're making this list and they're missing the whole point, which is our heart. Where is your heart? Later on, Jesus actually addresses this again. If you want to turn to Matthew 23, you'll hear some words that are very relevant for this this whole discussion. In Matthew 23, starting at verse 16, Jesus is challenging the Pharisees. He's calling them out, and he says, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. 
But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, then he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus is saying, no matter what you take an oath by or swear by, you can't get around the Lord himself when you make a promise. If I name myself a Christ follower, it all comes back to the same thing. My words reflect back on God himself. If you swear by the temple, that's where he dwells. If you swear by heaven, that is his dwelling place. If you swear by the earth, he made it. He made your head. Jerusalem is his city. All things are his. So we who name ourselves Christians by Christ's name, how we promise and how we speak reflects back on God himself. Now I wonder, when you hear about this whole system that the Pharisees created, what is your, what is your gut response as you're thinking about they made the system of things that you're allowed to swear by, system of things you're not allowed to, it doesn't matter if you swear by these, but you have to. What is kind of your gut response when you hear that? If you're anything like me, it's probably... It's, Silly Pharisees, like doing it again, you know, ridiculous, silly rules just to make themselves look good, which is a pretty ironic response. Is it not pretty pharisaical (laughs) for me to separate myself from them and think that I would do so much better? And we're really, I don't think that much different from them. I don't know if it's maybe just because I've been working with college students for so long, but every time the issue of truth-telling comes up, it seems like the conversation always gets to the same place. Okay, but do I really have to tell exactly the facts of the truth every single time? I mean, imagine, this is where it always goes, right? Imagine I'm in Germany during World War II, and the Nazis come, and I'm hiding Jews. Do I have to tell them if they ask that I'm hiding them? Well, then I can lie, right? So there are situations I can lie, and the conversation tends to go from there. Again, maybe it's just college students, but it always seems to get to that place. It seems like we look so quickly for very specific rules to tell us what to do in specific situations, or we're looking for exceptions. How can I maybe get out of this truth-telling? In the best situation, maybe we're just looking for how we can honor God, but we want to know exactly how it looks like to do that. And I do think eventually we have to deal with the complex questions, but I do also think that from this sermon that Jesus is giving, I think his first response to that question would be, that's not my point here. The point, again, is your heart. There is a common occurrence in our household. I'm usually off in a different room probably trying to keep my distance from the children. And I'll hear something like, Lucy, or Evie, no, don't do that. Or maybe just a yell of some sort. And so I take a breath if I'm in a a good place. I take a breath first, and then I slowly walk in and dealing with my own anger and frustration before even knowing what happens. I walk in and I ask, okay, what happened? 
And you know what's amazing is that even though only one thing actually happened, I always get multiple versions of the same story. Well, that, what, let me just tell you what happened, Daddy. What happened was I was trying to pick up my marker because, of course, I know you guys don't like to have our markers all over the floor. And so I just reached down and I picked it up, and, and, and that's what I did. And then I hear, no, 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 that's not what happened. She reached over, she picked up the marker, and she hit me in the face, by the way, as she went by, and then she yelled at me and told me I could never use the marker again. Well, which version am I supposed to believe? Who's right? Who's wrong? What should I tell them to say? What do they do? Well, you know what these two dear, sweet children of God, whichever two they might be at the moment, actually need in that moment? It's not to know who is right, and it's not to know who is wrong. What they need is to slow down and look at their hearts. They don't need a system and an exact rule to follow to know what to do. They need to know where their own hearts are. Because the tendency that we have is to bend the truth to benefit ourselves. It's amazing. I've never had one of my children bend the truth to hurt themselves and help another. (laughs) And that's just the way that we operate. We tend to manipulate the truth, to bend it, in order to benefit ourselves in some way. There will be complicated situations. I understand that. Trust me, my Ukrainian friends... uh, They understand that there are very complicated situations right now about when to tell the truth and how. But before we ever start making rules about what we should do or how, Jesus is saying, look at your own heart and is God's glory at first place in your heart. Now, I'm guessing that some of you look at Jesus' words and you noticed that he said, do not take an oath at all. And so you're wondering, okay, does that mean that for Christians, it is actually never okay to take an oath, to to swear that you will do something or to swear that you are telling the truth? Is that just out of bounds for us? Well, there are places in the Bible where God's people actually do take oaths throughout the Old Testament. And I want to get back to those in just a second. But the, the Quakers, who you might have heard of, known as the Society of Friends, they have actually taken just that position, that you cannot take an oath as a Christian. And so they do not join the military, where you must swear an oath to be part of it. Uh, they do not take oaths in court. And so maybe that's the conclusion that we should draw, that it's never okay for a Christian to swear by anything or take an oath to do something. Now, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I think that Jesus' actual point and what he would say first is, the real question is, where is your heart? If we look at the things that he's been teaching up to this point when he said, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. But I tell you, do not even get angry in your hearts. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, do not even think and feel and look lustfully with your heart. Or you've heard that it was said, give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, are you even valuing marriage in your heart? And so it's always coming back to the heart level. Where is your heart? So if I go back to the question now, can we take oaths? Is it even okay for Christians? 
There are places in the Old Testament throughout the Bible where God's people take oaths. Abraham makes his servant swear by God to do something for him. Jacob makes Joseph swear by God to do something for him. David has Jonathan swear to him to take an oath. Ezra and Nehemiah, if you know them in the Old Testament, they had Israel's leaders swear to obey God's law. And then as we get to the New Testament, even Paul, the apostle, in 2 Corinthians 1 says, I call God to witness that what I am telling you is true. And then he goes on to say something. Jesus himself actually spoke under oath in Matthew 26. And then even God himself in the Old Testament says to Abraham, by myself I have sworn that I will surely bless you. And so it does seem that there is a place for God's people to take an oath, to show the seriousness of what they're saying. The uh, godly equivalent of I swear by my father's soul, Domingo Montoya, maybe <laughs> a little more serious than that. But I would say that just like with divorce, oaths and swearing only exist because of our hardness of heart. In a world without sin, there would be no need to prove the seriousness of what I'm saying by taking an oath on something. It's something that comes up because of our sin. And that's why when Jesus speaks of oaths here and he says, do not take an oath at all, he's giving us a different way, a better way for his kingdom, the way of simple truthfulness. Um, for those of you who don't know me and my family, we have been missionaries in Ukraine for the last nine and a half years. And when we came back uh, last summer, I experienced what maybe I should have expected but didn't really, which was a lot of reverse culture shock, coming back to my own home country but not recognizing a lot of things. And I realized I had changed a lot over the course of nine years. Ukraine had changed me, had a little bit of a different, a different color to me, a, a Ukrainianness. And America had changed over the course of nine years as well. And one of the things that really struck me that I, I was amazed by that I did not remember before I left was just how often people have said to me, I, I just don't trust the news anymore. You don't know who to believe. There's no one you can really trust to tell you the truth out there. And I was just amazed at how often I have heard that. And of course, the people of Ukraine are quite familiar with not being able to trust state media. You know, they've had a hundred years of Russian propaganda to, to face. And I can tell you that the places that that takes you are very weird and really quite, quite difficult and terrifying. Early on after Russia's invasion in Ukraine last year, the Russian state media put out the story that uh, the United States had laboratories scattered throughout Ukraine. And one of the things these laboratories were doing was taking pigeons and infecting them with various diseases, like the plague and cholera. And then, wouldn't you know it, these pigeons mainly have their migratory routes through Russia. <laughs> and so they said that the United States was infecting pigeons with the plague and then sending them to fly throughout Russia. They declared that it was a genocide of the Russian people, that the Americans were trying to take them out. And so there were flyers that came up in Russian apartment buildings that said, please don't attract the pigeons with bread. Think of my family and yours. <laughs> and these are the very strange places. And honestly, you can begin to find things like this in America as well. Thankfully, not usually in the mainstream. But 
This is what happens in a world where deceit is commonplace and lies are expected. Now imagine a different world. Imagine that you turn on your TV or open up your notebook or, in my case, you speak to your smart speaker and say, hey, Google, what's the news for the day? And what you hear back to you is simply the truth, relevant and honest. Implicitly, you know that it's sincere. Or parents, imagine that your children always tell you what is true and what they're thinking and what has happened because they trust you. Or kids, imagine that your teachers and parents never try to manipulate the truth just to get you to do what they want. But they speak truth to you lovingly every single time. Imagine that you, even if the truth would hurt your business chances or your reputation or your bank account, that you didn't even have a second thought about speaking truth because God's glory is what you wanted more than anything. This is what Jesus envisions for us, the goodness of speaking the truth simply. And he says, be that, because that is freedom. Now, I hope at this point you feel both inspired and terribly uncomfortable. (laughs) Because if you look at your heart for even a moment sincerely and honestly, then like me, you probably look and say, I do not do this. I do not live always by truthfulness. In fact, I don't even know if I can do that. We fall short of this over and over and over. And I know my own heart. I am tempted to hide. I'm tempted to manipulate, even in the smallest ways, the truth that I need to speak so that I look better or I get what I want and need. But this is where the good news comes in because Jesus lived out simple truthfulness perfectly to his own hurt, to the point that it cost him his life on the cross. You remember that this whole section of Matthew chapter 5 started with Jesus saying, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he fulfilled this aspect of it too, speaking the truth every single time that he had the opportunity. And the good news is in that because where you fail, where I fail, Jesus succeeded. And that makes all the difference because by faith, he stands in our place before God as the real truth teller, where we have not and where we have manipulated and lied. And if you're here this morning and maybe you're just not sure what you think about Jesus or this whole Christianity thing, I'm really glad that you're here I don't think it takes a Christian to look honestly at their own heart and say, yeah, I don't live up to that standard that he's talking about, that Jesus gives to us. We're just too bent on ourselves, and sadly, we, we contribute to the culture of distrust and deceit. But God invites us, all of us this morning, to come to him and say, I have manipulated, I have lied, white lies or big lies, and please forgive me. And the good news is, and what's beautiful, is that Jesus not only forgives us, he actually renews us as well. He doesn't just show us how to live in the kingdom, but he empowers us to live out the kingdom. And that's why 
it is actually possible in the real world here in Grace Fellowship Clanton for you to be a trailer of the kingdom to come, a picture of what God wants for the world, for this to be a place of simple truthfulness where people want to be here because they trust you and they feel safe because of the truth that permeates this place and this people. I'll close with this last story. I remember that I was having a Ukrainian language lesson some years ago, and it was in our apartment. And I remember that we were having problems with our electricity at the time. And if you had seen our apartment and our stairwell, you would probably wonder why we didn't have more problems with our electricity. (laughs) Because as you walked into the stairwell, there was just a tangled mess of wires and plugs. And most of them, I'm pretty sure, from the 60s or 70s in the Soviet Union, just hanging out there. And I had no clue what was going on. But the guy who came to help us, I remember he got on a ladder. And for some reason, I remember that he was a Protestant. They kind of tended to stand out in Ukraine where everybody was either Catholic or Orthodox and there were so very few Protestant Christians. And I remember that it was in the middle of the language lesson when I'm sitting there trying to conjugate verbs and understand vocabulary and whatever and I'm just listening, waiting, hoping I don't hear a zap in the fall of a a ladder. And my language teacher, who was an old Ukrainian lady, started talking to me about the Baptists, which is really funny. In Ukraine, I have to give you some context. Baptist just means anyone who's not Catholic or Orthodox. They, they don't have the nuance to differentiate after that. Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Baptist, whatever. They're all Baptists. So she's talking to me about the Baptists. And I remember her talking to me and telling me, she, she actually said something that I, I don't think I'll ever forget. She said, you know, the, the Baptists, and people always talk about how weird the Baptists are. You know, they're kind of strange and super religious and all committed to, to their way of religion and stuff. And most people don't even really make friends with them. But everybody wants a Baptist to work for them. And I said, really? Why is that? She said, because they know that they'll be honest. And I pray that that is exactly the kind of reputation that we as God's people will have in front of a watching world, that whatever strangeness they may think about our beliefs in Jesus, they will say, but they are truth tellers. They live out of simple truthfulness. Let's pray together. Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, empower us to live out this principle that you have given us, that our yes might be yes and our no might be no. And help us in the difficult, complex moments to live for your glory and have that first in our hearts. And we pray this in the name of our Savior who lived out truthfulness every day perfectly. Jesus Christ, 